The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on Crimes Against Women. I'm Maria McMullen. The following episode was recorded in January 2022 for our sister show, Genesis the Podcast, and discusses the relationship between mass shootings and domestic violence. In light of recent events in Allen, Texas, and across the country, we're sharing this episode again because it contains important details and data about mass shootings that may inform your work and expand your understanding of these types of crimes. This episode discusses mass shootings, gun violence, domestic violence, and suicide. A new report from the Office of Justice Program's National Criminal Justice Reference Service was made public in December 2021. The report, titled Domestic Violence and Mass Shootings, a review of current academic literature, provides important information about the history of abuse and the use of firearms in domestic violence, and how these factors can predict future violence on a larger scale, such as mass shootings. Here to break it down are Genesis's own Jan Langbein and Jordan Lawson. Jan and Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with both of you. And there is a new report about the intersection of domestic violence offenders and mass shootings. The study titled Domestic Violence and Mass Shootings, a Review of Current Academic Literature, was prepared by Dr. Lynn Huff Corzine of the University of Central Florida and Dr. Thomas Marvel an independent researcher. And we're going to talk through their findings today, but here's the overview of what the report addresses. And I've taken this verbatim from the executive summary in the report. So the following is a quote. This report originated with a House Appropriations Committee directive that requested that the Attorney General investigate whether it is possible to use an individual's history of domestic violence to determine the likelihood that he will commit a mass shooting. The National Institute of Justice added a request to determine whether there is potential for criminal justice professionals to use records of domestic violence abusive offenses as part of a process for assessing risk for carrying out a mass shooting. And so in this report, we will find the results of an extensive literature review of domestic violence and mass killings and their possible intersections. So it's timely that we're discussing this topic in light of the events over the weekend of January 16th with the hostage situation in Colleyville, Texas, uh, in a synagogue that fortunately ended with all hostages escaping unharmed. And I also want to add as well, for just a bit more context to this conversation, that the New York Times reported this morning that homicide rates in the United States in 2020 increased more than 27%. And reportedly, this is the largest percentage increase in at least six decades in the United States. And 2021 saw another increase over the 2020 rate of homicides. So keeping all of that in mind, 
Jan, let's hit the highlights of the study for our listeners. And first of all, this is important new information for a variety of reasons, and we can look at uh, some of those highlights. Sure, sure. So I think the two important questions that this study is asking, is there a connection? Is there a risk factor between domestic violence and mass shootings? And then also, is there a potential for criminal justice folks, as you said, to uh, kind of seek out who has a potential for that? Answer a number one question, absolutely. Yes, there's a connection, I think, between domestic violence and mass shootings. Um, anecdotally, we have seen that you know, throughout this past decade with different um, uh, shooters, the the Parkland, Florida shooter, mm-hmm. the Sutherland Springs shooter, the which was the biggest mass shooting in the state of Texas. Uh, you know, the Boston Marathon had a history, uh, Boston Marathon bomber had a history of domestic violence. We definitely see there is a connection. But with regards to the second portion of that, uh, could criminal justice professionals use these records? And unfortunately, it's almost impossible. We have had some studies talk about um, I mean, we're working really hard right now in the field of domestic violence to see what is the uh, risk factor for fatality of that victim, mm-hmm. of that one victim within the home. What is? What are the behaviors? What's the uh, risk factor, uh, lethality factor? And uh, Jackie Campbell and others have studied this for a long time. Um, there are a lot, mass shooting, thank God, is relatively rare. Right. Uh, domestic violence unfortunately, is not. But it is definitely something that we look at not only at Genesis, but then also at our National Conference on Crimes Against Women. Each year we bring in law enforcement, the best minds, uh, prosecutorial experts to come in and not only teach and learn from each other, but also take a look at some of these issues. Like, could there be a possibility of, uh, you know, predetermining who is a potential mass shooter? For me, you know, I think that the last time you invited me on the podcast, Maria, for this, and I really appreciate it, I think I probably used the word accountability over and over. Mm-hmm. So apparently that's going to be my role today too, maybe is this, because for me, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm kind of trying to imagine what would be the way to predetermine. And one of the things that just comes to mind is actually to um, charge, prosecute, and give heavier consequences for the crimes of domestic violence that are happening in the first place, right? So I just can't help but wonder if the benefit of using the research of whether or not somebody who commits domestic violence would then be at risk of committing mass shooting would be to actually earlier intervene on violent actions and have greater consequences um, for violent actions, Um, you know, maybe even potentially forced interaction with the mental health community and with ongoing psychiatric care or assessment there. It's just, I do think it does the question is really important, like you said, Jan, because I do think there are ways in which it could allow for different interventions earlier on to try to just have accountability on what is just violent behavior, period. I think that's a great point, Jordan, because even if they, if it doesn't come out the way I think the study is hoping it does, those early interventions are going to make a difference in the home anyway, right? The byproducts of those, the accountability and the, uh, you know, keeping up with people and mental health checks and those kinds of things. But so many, it concerns me because so many of the domestic violence assaults are never reported. So if you think of the low rate of reporting and who are we going to follow? 
You know, it seems like so many of these shooters have had no intersection with law enforcement and, um, uh, you know, mental health professionals or service providers. Uh, and then all of a sudden they just go berserk because mm -hmm. women won't go out with them. Or, you know what I'm saying? They, they come yeah. up with this thing in their heads that is just, um, I learned the term incel and in, involuntarily celibate. And that was that, what that boy was in, I believe the shooting was in Mansfield, really close to Dallas. Uh, there was a shooting, what a mass shooting, but um, he uh, was a part of this organization of involuntary celibates. Mm -hmm. What? How do you find them? How do you hold them more accountable? How do we do these things? And I don't know. It's going to take people much smarter than I am. One of the yeah. things I, I think you alluded to, Jan, was the the lack of law enforcement agencies talking to each other or communicating with each other to understand what's happening in other parts of the country or in other parts of the state right. so that they actually could identify someone who has had multiple violations of violence. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, and if he has a profession like uh, a truck driver and he's assaulting in different states or, I mean, it's just really it, different jurisdictions, you're right, they're not talking to each other unless it's at the federal level or at the Conference on Crimes Against Women because we do see people coming together there and saying, well, that just sounds exactly like a case I had back in Hohokus, New Jersey. Or yeah, something. that's definitely a hindrance right. to the process uh, that the study points out. There's also an assertion in the report that indicates, quote, future research may also benefit from more precise definitions of domestic violence, mass murder or shootings, and the characteristics of offenders. So let's look first at the definition of domestic violence. So according to this study, they define domestic violence and or the definition of domestic violence in federal law includes felony or misdemeanor crimes of violence by a past or current intimate partner other family members, or other similarly situated. The state statutes and academic researchers usually use broader definitions that include emotional, psychological, and economic abuse, laden with toxic tactics that abusers use, such as intimidation, isolation, threats, blaming her for anything he finds displeasing, and using her um, their children against her. And so I think the significance of, of potentially using research to redefine the definition is that definition does kind of really leave a lot to be questioned. Mm -hmm. Like it leaves intimate partner, but also has other family members or others situated, which I know sometimes could include um, roommates or somebody staying in the home. Um, and it also has kind of a very narrow and yet really broad definition of what is the behavior that's abusive. And a lot of times as advocates, we um, are concerned that it doesn't give space for the really really um, detrimental impact of emotional abuse, of controlling behaviors, of financial abuse, um, of verbal abuse, and the kind of indirects that are more commonly, you know, direct threats, telling somebody that you are going to kill them is illegal. That falls within the statute. The indirect threats that are more common um, and more typical, a lot of our clients have a hard time getting any relief for that or any protection for that because they can't prove that it's a threat. Um, so I am interested in this idea that we could redefine and better, maybe better clarify while also leaving space for and allowing for these behaviors that are not necessarily physically abusive or sexually abusive, but have a serious and detrimental impact on our clients. Well, and I think I agree with Jordan. Um, it's the power and the control and the 
the uh, threats and the whatever, that almost seems to me like that would be a better precursor than a misdemeanor or a conviction of a felony. I had the opportunity uh, in the Bush administration to serve in the Office on Violence Against Women, and the definition of what Jordan is talking about was actually the definition on the website of what is domestic violence? And it was only within the, with this last administration that that changed. And I remember going on the website for just not even this, but something else. And man, I could hear advocates all over this country <laughs> setting their hair on fire, uh, but to no good. I even spoke to the director at that time, who was a, a presidential appointment uh, by um, President uh, Trump. And they were like, it's not an option. We're not going to talk about it. That's what it's going to be. And it was, there was something funky about the whole thing. Uh, but again, Jordan, to your point, the most detriment is not the slap, whether it's prosecuted or not. It's all that power and that control and the narcissism and the gaslighting and all of that stuff that our clients see. However, to me, would be a better precursor of somebody loading a trunk full of guns and driving to DC. So do you have any specific recommendations on how we could better define it? Any words or phrases? Well, I'd love it if they would let me be in charge. I really, yeah. <laughs> I really do. Me too. I do. I this this may be our opportunity to yeah, put our opinions yeah, on Yeah, let's floor. vote, right? Yeah, okay. No, I think it does need to include, uh, um, and if, if there would be some way, Maria, to say not only those that have been prosecuted, but those that have not, those types of uh, reports that are not prosecuted. Um, there are a lot of uh, 911 calls that are never brought to court for many reasons. She may recant uh, her report or and for a hundred reasons there as well. But if we could bring in the uh, the power and the control and the dynamics of what rather than the acts themselves, rather than just the physical acts just, of violence, just the acts of someone who has a potential for this, but the dynamics of someone mm -hmm. who has a potential for this. I think that's what the definition could be if we're going to research it uh, for potential lethality. For me, I, there's two words in particular that I think are really important here, just like Jan was saying. The first one is intimidation. I do think that word um, being held within the definition allows for an understanding of that, that our focus should not necessarily always be on what was the abuser's specific and exact behavior, but what was the impact on the victim? Um, and is the impact on the victim making her feel intimidated, making her feel afraid, making her feel forced? Um, because if that impact is on the victim, it doesn't matter what the abuser did. It was domestic violence. It was intimate partner abuse um, per our definition. And it would be really important for um, the government and the law to be able to recognize that impact because, again, that would be the ability to get her justice or protection under the law based on how it's absolutely disrupting her day-to-day -day life, right? It would be able to assist the law and the government in understanding and explaining why these crimes are so severe and so important, why it's not just he called her a name or it's not just he gives her a $20 allowance a week. Um, but really, what's the societal impact that comes from these behaviors? Um, <clears throat> the other word that we would really like for it to be in there would be the idea of um, co coercion or coercing somebody into doing things. So again, this isn't that forceful 
I dragged you into the car and made you go there. But it is that kind of manipulation and coercion and gaslighting to make you give away your choice, to make you kind of do it and feel guilty and feel like you want you, you know, you consented or you gave it when in truth and actuality, your choice was taken away from you. You were controlled. Um, it was just not as maybe blatant as physically dragging somewhere to go, some someone somewhere to make them do something. Hey, Jordan, let me ask you, what are the uh-huh. dynamics of someone who does that? The characteristics of the person? Yes, the characteristics, yes. Yeah, usually it's a relation that we see coercion within majority of domestic violence relationships. That when I talk to a victim, I can hear the idea of coercion because it is a sneakier tactic than dragging somebody, right? And oftentimes it leaves the cl- the victim feeling like, well, it's my fault I chose to go there. It's my fault I chose to have sex with him or it's my fault I chose to give him my money, right? And so then it, it, he has created space for him to not be guilty, right? Um, and so I think understanding and giving space for in the definition for how strong manipulation and coercion plays into abuse, how much that is a kind of tactic and, and core thing, as much as it's physically intimidating and scaring, it's also manipulating and coercing somebody um, into doing what you want them to do. So characteristics would be narcissistic, uh, coercive, manipulative. Definitely. Absolutely. Um of lies, whether they be white lies, little lies. Um, a lot of times what we see is caring a lot about things being exactly the way it has to be exactly this way, exactly this way. I have to look a certain way. Everybody has to think of me a certain way. Um, and so gaslighting and the ability to kind of tell a story and sell a story is a common one that we hear there too. Well, and I think too, Maria, that we are in a crazy world right now where everyone feels entitled to express those kinds of characteristics. Uh, It has to be a certain way or I will kill you. I I mean, it just is phenomenal to me to watch uh, people who feel like they are entitled to what they want the way they want it, which is absolutely a dynamic of domestic violence. It really is. And I'm glad you all brought up characteristics because we're definitely going to talk about that in a few minutes. But let's just stay on language for one more minute because we have this discussion all the time. And I was happy to read that the report includes changing the language or the question from why doesn't she just leave to why does he do that? I know you're on board with you this. You know I'm yeah. on board with you know I'm on board with this. Somewhere along the way we completely lose track of the crime and of the perpetrator. One of my um favorite things to talk about. And I don't know if I've done it here on this podcast. Probably. I know exactly where you know where, where you're I'm going. going. Yeah. But it's Jackson Katz is the actually who introduced it and he's a, a social worker really an advocate in this field. And he was quoting press one time. John beat Mary because dinner was late. The next day, the announcement was Mary was beaten because dinner was late. The third day, Mary was beaten. And then the fourth day, Mary is a battered woman. So she is defined by something that happened to her. So where is John? Where, why are we not holding him accountable? As Jordan was saying, why aren't we making a bigger deal in the workplace where he is in the faith community where he is? Why are we as a society not holding the perpetrator accountable? It would be like if you got COVID expecting you to fix it, 
by just mm-hmm. going home and quarantining. We've got to stop COVID. We've got to do the research and get the vaccinations and, and have the mandates of, of whatever. Um, and so, I, yeah, I feel like without that accountability, and I think, Jordan, you alluded to that as well, um, you know, this isn't getting better. This, to me, is getting worse. For me, it's also this kind of, um, you know, I think you you brought up COVID. And so I'd say I think one of the really hard things that we as a collective society have experienced is this kind of understanding of our limited amount of control when there are things out there that could hurt us or, or could um, impact us, right? We could do all the things that we're supposed to do for COVID, and yet it's still been here for two years, right? Um, and I, I can't help but correlate that with what you're talking about here in the definition, Maria, because as a society, we've been focusing for a really long time on why doesn't she just leave? And I think it's because we have this underlying desire for it to just be a quick and simple solution to fix DV. If she would just leave, it would just be over. If she would just do what she's supposed to do, if she wouldn't be weak and she would stand up to him, or if she would just... Um, you know, give him what he wants and be a better wife, then DV would be fixed and everything would be okay. And with the refocusing of why does he do that? I think it really gives us the chance to examine the kind of parts of our culture and parts of our society that really not only um, kind of in teach, but encourage this behavior, the ways in which the characteristics of this are um, there within human beings, but not everybody's abusive. So somebody has to have these characteristics and take it and go the wrong way with it, right? So switching the question really helps us look at, again, how do we recognize this and intervene and put the accountability on the perpetrator even before they're a perpetrator, potentially, um, to be able to really try to change course and really maybe hopefully then make steps for stopping domestic violence. You know, there was a mass killing. We're talking about mass killings today. And mm-hmm. there was a mass shooting in a Plano, Texas, right just north of Dallas uh, in a backyard. There was a man named Spencer Height who had been married to his wife and very, very abusive. And you know what? She did everything right. She got a protective order. She did leave him. She did get a divorce. And the weekend after the divorce was final, um, she invited friends to come over for a barbecue, watch the Dallas Cowboys game, and uh, Spencer shows up and he kills eight people. Um, that was, as they describe it in this report, a domestic mass killing, uh, which, you know, sometimes people, I feel like they kind of shuffle that off, like, oh, well, that can't happen to me, but getting a mass shooter in Walmart killing everybody. That could happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want us to downplay this kind of mass shooting at all, but you're absolutely right. If we can hold accountable, she did everything she did. Why doesn't she just leave? Uh, so we know for sure that's not the answer. That's not the only uh-huh. answer. Uh, most women are killed after they've left the relationship. And so we encourage at Genesis for people to not just get out, but get out safely. We safety plan, safety plan, safety plan, right, Jordan? With everybody that calls every chance that we get. Um, so if you are going to leave, you want to do it and, you know, be safe doing it. Absolutely. And I think we have a, an opportunity here with these new findings um, to talk more about the language that we use around domestic violence and the way that we talk about victims and the way that we talk about offenders. So to be continued on refining this definition, overall the report indicates that prior domestic violence may be a risk factor for future mass shootings. And for reference, a mass shooting 
in this report is defined as killing three or more people. But there are other behaviors that influence potential for these mass shootings, not just domestic violence. And perhaps the bigger discussion here relates to access to firearms. According to the trace.org, a source that investigates gun violence in America, the, quote, demand for firearms has spiked after events like mass shootings and elections. And according to their data report that was updated on January 4th, 2022, the spike in, in the purchase of firearms with the arrival of the COVID pandemic revealed an incomparable surge in gun ownership in the United States with monthly averages of firearm purchases more than doubling in the months of June and July of 2020, meaning that they went from 1 million per month to 2 million or more per month, and coinciding with the murder of George Floyd at that time. With another significant spike in January 2021, coinciding with the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building. Well, I don't know where to start. On the that data, one. the data tells the story. It Follow tells, the it data. Does t- it does tell the story, and I think COVID was one thing, but I think before the January sixth, you had the November election, mm-hmm. and this craziness that is, everybody's out to get me, and I have to protect myself, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one to to shoot people. I mean, this fascination with firearms and it's my right um, to have them and use them is so scary to me because uh, we know that the presence of a firearm in a domestic uh, in a domestically violent home ratchets up that factor of lethality. It certainly does. But right. we also know that um, uh, both state and federal law, Texas state and federal law, say that if there is a history of domestic violence, you can't have, own, buy, borrow, use, load any of that uh, firearms and you have to you should surrender those firearms uh, to authorities however we have really seemed to just hit the wall on figuring out how to make that happen Um, so unfortunately as the numbers of firearms are purchasing is going up uh, there is no reduction on those who really should not have firearms and many of these uh, mass shooters the um Micah Johnson, who uh, was the mass shooter in downtown Dallas, killing five and injuring 11, five police officers, one dart officer, never should have had a gun because there was a history of violence against women. The Sutherland Springs shooter never should have had a firearm. There was a history he had cracked his stepson's head with a butt of a gun. Yeah, I think it really, the numbers really kind of creeped me out. And so as we're talking, I'm just kind of like, oh, right. Great out by the idea. I also can't help but hear just this, this like um, entitlement to control and this yes. entitlement to be in control, right? And and both of those things just concern me because again, that is the root of domestic violence. So if if what we're actually doing is we're enforcing this belief system that everybody should just be in control and be in control of each other, we're just we're just hammering in the idea of of the right to make other people do what you want, the right to hurt people even more. So it just really is concerning and really scary to me. You know, Maria, I was watching um, a news channel and it was Dr. Fauci being interviewed by a Senate committee. 
And he was talking about a particular um, legislator who just keeps saying Fauci's killing five, you know, has killed five million mm-hmm. people or something. And he talked about the the kickback on something like that, that they actually had arrested a man from the West Coast heading into D.C. with a car full of automatic weapons wow. to kill Fauci because he had killed five million people. Mm-hmm. So the gullibility of people who also have access to guns, who are also controlling and also probably have some mental health issues, all of that put together is a recipe for mass shooting. Absolutely. And to the point of domestic violence crossing over into mass shootings, the report indicates that two-thirds of mass shootings are domestic violence related. That is a lot. Um, And it breaks down the characteristics of domestic violence offenders and those of mass shooters. And the similarities are overwhelming. I'm hoping that Jan and Jordan, you can comment on these and maybe uh, give our listeners an overview on what's on either side of the chart. Yes. So one of the first ones, you know, we've said the words a couple of times, but one of the first common similarities between mass shooters and also domestic violence perpetrators is the sense of entitlement. And so I know we've said it a couple of times, but it just seems imperative to say it once more, right? That this belief system of having the right, having the right to get what you want, having the right to do what you want, having the right to make other people give you what you what, what you want or do what you think they sh- should do, you having the right to determine what others should do. It's a common characteristic here. We know in domestic violence, it then means that um, perpetrators believe that they have the right or they're justified in doing whatever abusive behavior it was um, to make the victim give them what they want or do what they want. In mass shootings, what we know a lot of times is that it's this idea of punishment, that I'm punishing you because you didn't give me what I want, or I'm punishing somebody, um, such as Sutherland Springs. Her, uh, His wife had left him, had attempted to flee the abuse, had attempted to be separated, protect her children. And so it was this punishing of um, not getting what I want and not... Um, not not being able to have everything that I want. I have the right to punish you. And I think with regards to domestic violence in the relationship, not not, uh, mass shootings, but in the relationship, a lot of times it can be just male privilege. Um, and you know, I'm the boss and you're not, I'm the king of the house and you're not, and so on and so forth. In mass shootings, however, it's white male off, most often white male heterosexual privilege. Um, and, Both are seen as a solution. I think uh, mass shooters see this violence. I'm going to kill Dr. Fauci Mm -hmm. because, and then that's the end of it. Whereas in domestic violence, uh, you know, it's a a way to control. It's a a way to uh, control the situation. And And, they see that as a solution. And those are irrational solutions. Absolutely. You know, killing anyone does not solve the problem. Right. Killing Dr. Fauci would not resolve COVID right. for any reason. Right, right. So what is that thought process? How does that... It's irrational. Yeah. yeah. I think it definitely plays into that mental health side of things, right? Like we have seen and heard that for mass shooters, a common characteristic is personality disorders or this um, inflated sense of self and this inflated sense of me versus the world um, that can be a part of a personality disorder, disorder, one that could be diagnosable, narcissism, the idea that everything's about me, therefore everything should be about me and for me. And again, if it's not, then I should punish you because you're not doing um, what I believe, we know that's true for, uh, we, we hear it and, and we're seeing reports and more research done for the mental health side of that, for mass shooting. On the domestic violence side of that, 
the mental health is a little bit more complicated, the conversation, because we do know that mental health is a part of it. We're not saying that somebody who's abusive is completely healthy in their mental health, right? However, what we also see is that they're not necessarily um, qualified for a mental health diagnosis, that, um, that it is not the mental health that is making them be abusive, is what I'm trying to say. And so a lot of times on the domestic violence side, we're talking about the fact that regardless of mental health diagnosis, regardless of narcissism, regardless of personality disorder, that domestic violence is a choice um, to control somebody and to have power over somebody. And we think it's important on the domestic violence side to say that and really kind of set that apart. Because again, we want there to be full accountability for, um, uh, for an understanding for the choice to be violent. Um, and we want, especially for victims to understand that majority of the time it is going to be safer to be away from this person because it's not necessarily a, a mental health diagnosis that could be treated and managed, um, that this is a really complicated mental health condition uh, that more than likely this person is going to have some struggle with or, or be um, kind of concerning and, and dangerous for most of their lives, if not all their lives. You know, another interesting characteristic for both uh mass shooters and domestic violence abusers is uh, suicide. And it, within, I chair actually the Dallas County um, Intimate Partner Fatality Review Committee. Mm -hmm. And again, this report says that half of those that kill three or three or more family members either kill themselves, um, this is domestic violence, homicide, yeah. intimate partner homicide, or suicide by cop. Um, we see a lot of times uh, those those offenders, bef they want someone to kill them. Right. And unfortunately, most police officers killed are killed answer answering domestic violence calls. But I think when it gets to that point, it's just the jig is up. I'm going to kill my wife, my kids, my, my, my mother-in-law, my everything. Um, and so the jig is up and I'm going to die too. If they're willing to do that, they're willing to die. Now, with uh, mass shooters... Uh, public mass shooters, uh, most of them, uh, I think, have been reported to be suicidal as well. Mm -hmm. They, But I think for different reasons, uh, not the jig is up, but I think it's more of a, I'll be a hero. If I do this, I'll be a hero or I will pay. I'll, yeah, it'll be, I'm going to pay them back for whatever. And I will have been the one who fixed it, solved it, you know, made it better. Right. We also say that a lot of times it's this, um, nothing left to lose kind of idea or mindset. Mm -hmm. So it's this, like, I, I have lost, you know, maybe a triggering event, like in mass shootings, we often hear again, like Sutherland Springs, this is also true of the Las Vegas shooter, um, that there was a loss of the relationship um, or a loss of some kind. And that kind of triggered this idea of um, being able to punish others or, or going out, like you said, Jan, with this kind of statement, um, right. because I have nothing else to lose. And so I'll prove this to everybody. Um, in domestic violence, we can see that a loss or a kind of failure to achieve. So losing what I think I deserve or losing what I think I should be given um, can be the trigger for violence or for um, trying to dominate and punish somebody. Um, so maybe an abuser went up for a promotion and didn't get the promotion. And so that would trigger then potentially the um, domestic violence incident or that being taken out on the, the spouse, um, the victim, because it's this idea of I didn't get what should have been mine. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so we've spent most of our time here today talking about the dark side of this, what's happening, what, what, how domestic violence uh, may trigger mass shootings and other forms of violence. But there is a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel because the report talks about a successful law enforcement program in High Point, North Carolina, that focuses on stopping offenders rather than forcing women and kids out of the home to get services. And this is something that I've talked to Jordan about. I've talked to Jan about. We talked about it together. We talk about it as an organization and a team. Um, approaches that will put the focus back onto the offender, not the survivor. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this High Point model or any other programs like it. Well, I like the movie, what, was it Matrix, where they could see a crime before it was committed? I don't know if that was the right movie, but Tom Cruise was in it, and they could actually arrest people before they ever oh, offended. Wow. I know, yeah. right? Okay. So I've always been thinking, like, if we could come up with a, you know, those early pregnancy tests or a nose swab, like right. we do with COVID, <laughs> and just say, oh, yeah, you have the potential for this, and we're just going to go ahead and arrest you now. <laughs> I haven't been able to pull that off yet, but uh, I, I, that's, a, that's a good idea. But it goes back to what Jordan said at the very beginning. We have to hold accountable potential right. and existing um, violence against other people, whatever form or fashion that comes in as, um, you know, there just has to be that accountability. And I, I don't know this program out of High Point, but boy, does it sound like they're on the right track. Yeah, I really think this, that this idea and the example of the High Point is really important. And I also think, um, like you said, Maria, on kind of a, a brighter side, I think this is evidence of how far we've come as a domestic violence movement, that in the beginning of DV work, it really was all focused on getting women to safety because that's all we could do. There wasn't really necessarily laws. There weren't necessarily a lot of services out there. All we could do was focus on getting her out of the home, hiding her away in a shelter, protecting her safe. And so I think where the movement has naturally gone and things like changing the definition of domestic violence or research that is exploring these things, what it's showing us and it's allowing us to think about it and, and really allowing us to maybe admit and see is we've been focusing on her for a really long time and we're really not doing much to try to stop him. We're not outside of trying to charge him with the crime and send him to jail, which again, we still support because that's the accountability, the intervention to try to see if there's a way to, um, to change his mindset or help him in a mental health capacity or any of these things, we haven't really been able to put a lot of focus on. And so I think programs like this are really interesting and really positive in that we're really trying to explore both sides of this in a balanced kind of um, whole picture way that hopefully could be really successful. When I was reading about the program, I was really excited to see that it actually quantified abusers into different categories. Um, and one of the largest categories of the largest groups that they have are abusers who have actually not yet been charged with the domestic violence crime, but the police have been called out to the home multiple times or service providers are aware. So this might be a situation where it's domestic violence. It just hasn't been the level of being able to charge him with a crime, right? Mm -hmm. There's domestic violence going on. He just hasn't straight up slapped her in the face. So the police haven't been able to arrest him yet. Um, so this would be the way to, again, to intervene and be able to start 
talking and, and, and giving skills and, and, and kind of holding accountable and, and changing that mentality, hopefully before a crime even happens. Or let me say that differently before it reaches the level of actually being able to legally charge him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a model to dig into and, you know, maybe we can talk about it again or yeah. even bring it to our local authorities for I conversation. Think it's brilliant, yes. I found it interesting that one of the sources quoted in the report makes a parallel of offenders and mass shooters with white male supremacy and entitlement. And we see this a lot, even among less violent crimes and even in sexual harassment and sexual assault. Maria, I, I really appreciate you saying this. What it reminds me of recently that we've seen in the news is actually the story of Andrew Cuomo and his brother, Chris Cuomo. Um, so the example is that Andrew Cuomo has actually been uh, charged with or, or accused of sexually harassing multiple women um, through his office as governor. Um, and recently, a, a kind of another story connected to it came up that really caught my attention. And that was the fact that Chris Como, his brother, has been accused of using his uh, title, using his privilege, using his um, job as a journalist in order to help his brother, in order to actually research and dig into the victims and try to find information about the victims to help his brother's defense team in being able to defend him. And as we're having this conversation about entitlement, I just couldn't help but hear the entitlement all over this story. Um, that again, the entitlement of somebody who believes they have the right to sexually harass women and then be mad that those women said something to somebody about mm -hmm. it. But then this idea of I get to use my um, my abilities and my um, uh, resources in order to continue to victimize by researching and digging into you and help my accuser. And I know one of the things that that we unfortunately see at Genesis from time to time is family members of the accused abuser calling, trying to get a hold of the victim or calling and trying to say, um, well, do you know this about her? And do you know that about her? Um, and kind of that entitlement of I, my brother is such a good person. Did you know he coaches the baseball team? Did you know he is, uh, you know, the pastor of our church? We've actually seen this at the shelter with even uh, family members going so far as to use maybe their badge as a police officer to try to get into the shelter to then see if his sister-in-law is in the shelter because I just want to talk to her. Um, or a CPS investigator using their credentials as CPS to try to see whether or not this victim might be staying in our shelter, getting services um, from our agency. And again, this story for me just kind of highlighted what we've been talking about, which is the lack of accountability to abusers, for abusers. Um, but not only are we not holding them accountable, but then this sense of entitlement is continuing through my right to discredit her even further, um, to dig into and try to prove how bad she is and how wrong um, she is or all of these things about her even further. The yeah. So, I mean, I mean, to be clear, th this is not domestic violence. Uh, this example of the Cuomo brothers and, and the actions that they've allegedly taken, it's not domestic violence and it's not a mass shooting, but entitlement is on that spectrum of and abuse being of abusive. Exactly. Of being abusive. And so this may be an opportunity again, to use the language of how we're defining something. How are we defining abuse of power? How are we defining 
victim blaming? How are we defining sexual harassment? You know, it's bigger than just one example or one instance. There's other ways to to talk about it. Well, and you were talking earlier about the increase in gun sales and the idea of COVID and the language in our society right now about my right and my right, right? Mm-hmm. But this story kind of shows that too, right? What is the right of the family of the abuser? What is the right of anybody around to support their brother versus using their resources to go after the victim, right? I think it just makes us question the language. Like you said, it's important to kind of highlight these words to really be aware of what what is your right here? You know, I was thinking about it as you all were talking about it, how our country has, how we, how the country forgives, normalizes this kind of behavior, even elects presidents of the United States who have said, when you're famous like me, I can kiss them, I can grab them. Um, and I, th- I literally thought that was the end of that campaign and how As did I, right? I had hoped it would be, <laughs> <laughs> but how we, you know, why was it that it took 40 people to accuse Bill Cosby 40 mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, back to the previous story we were talking about, uh, um, you know, when Donald Trump made these comments and continues to make them and yet we, they, Day, he discredits the victim as if she were pretty enough for me to do that. Or, you know, she's so ugly or look at her. I would never, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. That's his defense. Is she's not pretty enough. Um, I, I, I just think our society, particularly women voters, have to stand up and say, you don't get to say that about me or anybody, anybody, any of my sisters here, you know. Right. Um, I, I'm just I'm distressed right now about how normalized it has become and accepted. Uh, I, I have to. You know, it takes something, somebody like Harvey Weinstein, somebody with how many high profile people. But if there's one Harvey Weinstein, there's got to be 20 normal Joe down the street. Do you know what I mean? Who sees that behavior and it is accepted and therefore he could get away with it. And those, it goes back to what you were saying about things being underreported. I mean, not everybody reports sexual harassment. Right. Most don't. Or rape. Yeah. Yeah. Or domestic violence. Yeah. Um, well, and with the idea of accountability, you know, the Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo situation kind of allows for conversation of what would be the right thing for family members or friends of an accused abuser to do. And the truth is, is that we are not saying that an abuser is all bad all the time, right? Yeah. Like we we have space for an understanding for the capability of him to be a good t-ball coach or to be, uh, you know, a good friend and a generous donator to blank agency. Um, but accountability means having a very clear stance on you messed up here and that's not okay and I can't support you until you change and don't do that anymore. Um, and so I think a lot of times with family and friends of men who've been accused, it's this, um, it's this line of understanding. We're not asking you to necessarily push this person out of your life and never talk to them again, but we are asking you to be honest about what they have done and why it's wrong. Um, and to hold that line of this is not okay. It's not okay with me and it's not okay with our family. And so we're not going to help you with your defense of this. I remember a late night call, Jordan, that I got uh, from a high profile person here in Dallas, a dad, and his son had been arrested for uh, hitting his, I don't know if it was wife or girlfriend. And he says, do I go down and bail him out? And I said, well, I, I don't know that I can answer that for you, but I can tell you he's sorry right now, but until he can name it and claim it and say, just like you said, I messed up. 
um, you have to draw that line in the sand. And this was somebody who was very vocal about violence against women and horribly embarrassed when it was, you know, it hit that close to home. Uh, but I think that's it. You have to be able to say, the, the perpetrator has to be able to say, that was wrong what I did, and I, I, it was my fault, and it was violence. Instead of all these stories, you, you ticked me off, you pushed my buttons, you know, some, some, you know, I didn't get the job that I deserved. Um, we have to, we have to stop accepting that and hold each other accountable, even within the family, not just law enforcement, but in the, within the family as well, hold each other accountable. I'm all for that. And there's so much more to learn and understand about all of these issue, issues. So I think we're going to come back to them from oh, we time have to time. To. We, we have to come back yeah. to them. Okay, good. For further reading, the Office of Justice Program's National Criminal Justice Reference Service Report titled Domestic Violence and Mass Shootings, a Review of Current Academic Literature can be found at ojp.gov. Thanks for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Visit conferencecaw.org for details about the 2023 Conference on Crimes Against Women and other upcoming training opportunities. And follow us on social media at National CCAW. 